For October 19th, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. It is widely assumed that the ongoing migration of rural peoples to megacities all over the world will help reduce humanity's per capita energy footprint while giving people a higher standard of living and accelerating energy transition. But the world is full of old, inefficient cities in desperate need of an eco-makeover, while China is full of hastily built, inefficient new cities. In order for big cities to contribute to energy transition, as is hoped, we need experts who understand the principles of smart urbanization and who can help identify how to transform a city from brown and dumb to smart and green. So today we're speaking with C.C. Huang, an expert in smart urbanization who has studied what makes a city greener, healthier, and happier. Her work on urban development strategies seeks to identify key pathways that cities can take to improve their energy consumption, reduce pollution, and create more livable environments. She is also an expert on China and has looked closely at that nation's unbelievable construction spree in recent years, including the building of numerous so-called ghost cities that have no one living in them. So I'm eager to hear what she has to say about some of the issues we raised about those cities in our interview with James West in episode 14. Cece is a research and policy analyst currently working with Equilibrium Capital to accelerate investment in sustainable technologies and with the Energy Foundation China on urban development strategy. She led the creation of the Green and Smart Urban Development Guidelines, which are now being used to train government officials and guide large-scale urban development projects in China, inform urban planning in Mexico City, and to promote sustainability principles in Sweden. She has extensively published and has worked at Energy Innovation, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Cece, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. You've made a deep study of what makes cities truly sustainable. You've interviewed over 100 experts and reviewed hundreds of papers about green, low carbon, and eco-city development. So maybe we could just start with that. Like, What are some of the basic principles or meta-characteristics that you've identified that characterize a green city? Yeah, that's a really important question. And you know, something we found through all of our research is the most important part of a green city is really the urban form. Once you have in place a sustainable urban form, which at its foundation is small blocks, 
mixed use and transit-oriented development with a heavy emphasis on walking and biking, everything else can fit in naturally. So when you have a dense road network, then when you have buses or cars, they can really optimize traffic. And if you have a dense road network, that can also be very conducive to walking and biking. And in most of the sustainable cities we found all over the world, walking and biking make up a majority of the mode share. So that I think is sort of something that most people don't think about. We call them almost sort of these invisible design features because when you're walking on a sidewalk, you don't think about the sidewalk density, but that's really what can make the difference between good urban form and bad urban form. Huh. Okay. But apart from like personal mobility, what are some of the other characteristics? So other things would be sort of, you know, what types of transport people in a city are using? Is it biking or is it personal vehicles? You'll notice in cities in the U.S. like Houston or Atlanta that are very car dependent, you can see this reflected in the roads. So the speed of a road that's built for a car, which is usually, you know, 40 to 60 miles an hour, is very different from a road that's built for pedestrians, which operates at, you know, five miles an hour. So that's something that's very different as well. Something else would be green buildings. Green buildings can be sort of a lock-in energy sink for cities. If they are built well and managed well, they can be a huge source of energy savings. If they're built not green or built green and not managed well, they can be a huge energy sink. And I think finally is sort of the energy and resources part of the puzzle, which is the water system and waste system, whether or not you're using solar energy. And we've classified these in our green and smart urban development guidelines into three categories, which we call urban form, transportation, and then energy and resources. And we see those from the urban planning aspect as the most important characteristics that characterize a green city. Interesting. You know, one of the things that has really struck me every time I go to Europe is how different their approach is to zoning. Like here in the U.S., you know, you have these residential districts that might have a little bit of small commercial, and then oftentimes there's going to be like a shopping district where there isn't that much in the way of places to live. And then Outside the city boundaries is where all the industry and manufacturing is, and then way outside the city is where the power plants are. Yep. And if you go to Europe, you'll often find, like, you know, there's residential stuff mixed right in with industry and manufacturing, mixed right in with commercial shopping spaces. I mean, what are the, some of the pros and cons of that sort of from a smart or eco city standpoint? Yeah. So one of the biggest improvements of a mixed-use development over a single-use development, which is sort of the biggest distinction in terms of what you're talking about for Europe and the United States. First is sort of walkability. So why do people love, you know, San Francisco? San Francisco is a very neighborhood-heavy city, which means that every neighborhood sort of has its own cluster of stores and restaurants and cafes. If you go to a city that's more single-use, you'll have huge residential areas and all the residents will have to drive 20 minutes to get to the closest grocery store. So this sort of access to amenities is one of the biggest advantages to mixed use. The second advantage to mixed use is sort of the energy cycles that mixed use makes possible. So when you have single use developments, you have these high peaks 
of energy use, you know, if it's all residential, then everyone's home from 5 to 9 p.m. and energy use is sort of peaking. If you have mixed use districts, then you have a more balanced load, which means that you have office and residential use during the day, but then you have also commercial restaurant and bar activity at night, which for a well-designed grid can really offer a lot of energy benefits as well. Oh, that's really interesting. It makes perfect sense, but I just never thought about it. Yeah. So as you look around the world, what are some of the cities that stand out to you as examples of how to do things the right way? And what do you like about them? Yeah, that's a great question. So one thing we've really noticed is that there are very few cities that really do all the green things well. Every city has a few standout components. And a few that we've studied in detail, one is Hammerby, which is a green district very close to Stockholm in Sweden. And Hammerby really boasts this amazing waste to energy system. So every residential development will have these pipes where residents literally throw their trash into the pipes and through a vacuum system, their waste becomes energy. And this powers all of the heating for Hammerby. Another example would be Portland's Pearl District, where there's been really great urban redevelopment, which the opportunity cost and energy savings is really significant. Instead of building a dozen brand new buildings, you save all the energy and materials and the construction and building process by redeveloping old buildings. And that also contributes to sort of the historical preservation and character of the Pearl District combined with their biking and light rail, I think Portland is another great example. Hmm. Another cool example, I think, is Madrid, which is the city with the world's largest e-bike sharing program. Now, Madrid is relatively hilly, and it has a very dense road network, which makes an e-bike sharing system very feasible. It's also a slightly larger city. So for access to, you know, distances that are more than a mile or two away, this can be really sustainable. So those are just a few examples. But I think there's now a lot of innovation and smart technologies in different cities that are really interesting. But again, I think it's important to emphasize that the foundational urban form must be prioritized for a city to be sustainable. Right. So from a foundational standpoint, I, I can imagine how if you were setting out to build new cities as China has done, and we're going to talk about China in a minute, mm -hmm. it's one thing to, you know, really come up with a good foundational strategy and build a good green city or design from the ground up. But what do you do about the really old cities? You know, the, the path dependency of their very layout makes it difficult to change much, particularly where transportation is concerned. I mean, you know, you could look at a place like London, like all you can really do is go down <laughs> and build a subterranean subway or go up and build some kind of overhead light rail or something. How can we make our oldest cities greener and cleaner, especially given how difficult it is to do things in them in an integrated way based on original design principles? Yeah, that's another great question. I'm full so of great I, questions. Yeah. <laughs> so I think something that is often overlooked with many of these old cities is they were actually built at a time where cars were not a primary transit option. So I think the number one thing these old cities can do are things like rezoning or encouraging mixed use so that people can access their major destinations by walking or biking. 
Second, there's a really low-cost public transit strategy that is now being used in cities like Curitiba and Guangzhou, which is bus rapid transit. To do bus rapid transit, you don't have to dig deep underground these expensive subway systems. You merely have a dedicated lane for buses and onboarding and offboarding stations for the public. Now, bus rapid transit systems can be 5% the cost of what a subway would be, but have the same load capacity. So it can carry the same amount of passengers. So these are just two examples of ways. And of course, looking at things such as retrofitting buildings can be really powerful or installing a building management system into an existing building. These are all really easy things to do to sort of retrofit or revitalize an older district. Interesting. But what about the layout aspect of it? You know, I think one of the things that makes a city really jump out at you as being green or as being friendly or a healthy place to live is it's got some open spaces, it's got some green places, even the, you know, these little micro parks seem to really mm-hmm. make a difference. How do you work with those concepts with some of these old dense cities? Yeah. So one thing that a lot of cities are now doing, for example, in terms of green roofs or urban agriculture, it's really a way to expand the public's green space in a city without taking up additional space. Another underused asset in a lot of these already developed cities are parking lots or parking garages. And as public transit or walking and biking networks improve, I think these are also additional spaces that could be used for urban agriculture or, you know, installing bike sharing systems or EV charging stations. I think there's a lot of unused space in these older cities that's been dedicated to the development of cars that can now be reallocated to Mm. human-centered approaches. That's a very good point. I'm trying to remember, you, you probably know off the top of your head kind of the standard metric of how, how much of a typical American city's footprint is devoted to cars, like, you know, the roads and the parking spaces and all that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really crazy. So we talk to a lot of people who are working on autonomous vehicles. And one interesting thing with autonomous vehicles is they're not going to need as many parking spaces. So that's actually one of the big selling points of these new autonomous vehicle companies to cities is saying, we are going to free up a lot of space within your city just because we don't need such big parking infrastructures. So that's really something that we'll see shifting in cities that were built after cars in the next decade. Well, how much space are we talking about here? I mean, how much of a typical city space is devoted to cars or how much could we maybe free up? I think it varies a lot based on the city. If you look at a city like San Francisco, I think it's a lot less. You know, I would guess 10 to 15 percent. If you look at a city like Houston, I think it's going to be a lot more ranging from 30 to 40 percent. So it really depends on the city. And, you know, in China, a lot of Chinese cities are built more after Houston. So I think if you look at the wide boulevards and the large parking spaces, this is actually a lot of potential there to redevelop and rededicate those spaces to a better use. Yeah. So let's talk about China. In your previous job with Energy Innovation, you did a lot of work on smart urbanization in China, which is surely an important climate lever and an ultimate driver of energy transition globally. I mean, after all, the migration of many millions of people from China 
China's rural communities to big cities is widely touted as one way that China will reduce its per capita energy footprint and improve its energy intensity. But yep. the way that China began its urbanization drive over the past couple of decades produced, as you put it in an article in March of this year, a lot of single-use, car-dependent, Soviet-style superblocks with really poor energy efficiency, uh, single-pane windows and buildings, no insulation, just horrendous sprawling urban areas that replaced over a million villages, historic areas, and ancient landmarks. I mean, what happened there? Why do you think China proceeded with its urbanization push in what seems like such a thoughtless fashion? I and mean, what, what was the rush? Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to look at China's development trajectory in retrospect. At the time when China was planning these cities, you know, that really was the cutting edge model. They were modeling after the Soviet Union. They were modeling after the United States, you know, the way... Detroit or Atlanta was being built, that's what China was modeling after. So I think a lot of that symbolism really characterized the rush. After Deng Xiaoping came into power, he really had to prove his economic model was going to work and that it was going to raise people out of poverty. And so when Chinese citizens saw these wide boulevards and saw a lot of cars going onto the roads, to them, that was a sign of economic prosperity. So I think that's one of the biggest reasons was just that China was, A, trying to catch up with the West, and B, trying to prove its own new development model after Mao. I think the second reason that started to become more of the driving factor in the 90s and after 2000 is the local governments having to make money from selling land. Because of China's complicated history with sort of landlords and property taxes, the local governments in China cannot collect property taxes. So selling land was really one of their major revenue sources. And I think third, the Chinese government realized that housing and vehicles are going to be two of the biggest and most expensive things people usually purchase. So when you're trying to you know, grow economy at 8 to 10% a year, that's largely going to be steel, cement, and manufacturing. And housing and cars were just two of the easiest things to push at that time. Okay. Now, that's a perfect segue to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which was the city construction boom that China did. I mean, it's absolutely... I can't. I still can't get my head around it. I mean, it just doesn't seem to make sense how utter, yeah. utterly huge it's been. I mean, literally hundreds of completely new, like, mini cities, districts, and towns built in just about 30 years, and including, I don't even know how many so-called ghost cities, which were apparently built in the expectation of people needing places to live, but which were never actually populated. I mean, to me, it just looks like an absolutely massive misallocation of capital and resources and everything. I mean, why did they do that? Was it a miscalculation of housing demand, or was it, as you say, just sort of a... Uh, an economic stimulus plan, or was it a speculative building bubble, or what? Yeah. No, I think all of the reasons you cited are contributing factors. But I think one thing that's often overlooked in media articles about this is the role of bad urban planning. So if you look at these ghost cities, most of them are not built close to transportation. And when no, you, they were built out in the country, weren't they? Yeah, they're built. They're built in the middle of nowhere, essentially. Uh, and just, just, just uh, to clarify, yeah. how many of these things are there, really? The statistics on ghost cities is really blurry right now. I've 
been working with a group. <laughs> Come on, man. These yeah. are cities. These are things you should be able to count. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So there's there's actually a lot of efforts to figure out what is a ghost city. So I've been working with a group called Beijing City Lab, headed by Professor Long Ying of Tsinghua University. And he's been looking at satellite data from Baidu or, you know, social media data from WeChat and Weibo to see where are these ghost cities and how can we actually classify a ghost city? So it's actually under a lot of controversy right now, not necessarily from the central government, but from local governments who are trying to say, you know, we're not building ghost cities and just because it's come under so much scrutiny. So the data for that, I'm honestly not sure. Wow. Yeah. That, 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 just, that just blows my mind. Yeah. It's fascinating. I think also because, you know, the speed at which it happened, I have two theories about this. My first theory is that we're judging China too quickly. You know, it takes decades for a city to mature. And after you build a lot of residential, it takes a while for there to be enough consumer presence for things like grocery stores or schools or hospitals to also make sense. And a classic example that developers will cite in China right now is Wangjing, which is a district in Beijing. Wangjing was, you know, purely residential. It was close enough to Beijing so that it didn't become a ghost city, but it later got public transit, which meant that now it's becoming sort of a mixed-use development because some developers are now selling units in this residential complex to become offices. So, you know, my optimistic hope for these ghost cities is that some of them will just take five to 10 more years to mature as more and more rural residents are moving into cities and public transportation improves. You know, the Chinese government just announced in the past month that they're going to be helping millions more rural residents get urban hukou, which is often sort of the gateway for these rural Chinese to move into a city and have access to schooling and hospitals and things like that. So that's sort of the optimistic view on ghost cities in China. Wow. That's really amazing. It probably goes without saying that these cities could achieve their ambitions of being so-called eco-cities or green cities, or they could turn into some sort of a William Gibson-style urban hellscape, you know, rife with pollution and low quality of life. It seems like we have some really important choices to make as to which path we take. So what are some of the pathways by which China's cities of the future can become more green and smart? Yeah. So one of the great things that came out of the Paris climate agreements is an alliance of early peaking cities in China was created. So these are cities that are promising to peak their emissions by 2020. And for a lot of them, that's actually a really difficult commitment. And they're looking for new ways to do that. So some of the things I talked about before, you know, better urban form, green buildings, waste systems, that's not going to be enough. They're going to have to capture more positive feedback loops from integrated design patterns. And I think that's really going to be one of the more innovative pathways that Chinese cities can take compared to their counterparts in the West. So what does integrated planning look like? It means that when the first step, when you start zoning for a city, you start thinking, what's the best place I can put a distributed energy center? You think, what's the type of way 
that I can design the street network so that I can have great piping for waste to energy network. So when you start planning in this integrated and holistic way from day one, that will capture a lot of additional energy savings that cities in the West, it's going to be harder to do just because there's already more built up environment in those cities. Hmm. But what about these, as you were saying earlier, these kind of Soviet-style superblock things with these, you know, kind of badly built buildings with no insulation and single-pane windows? I mean, is this going to be just like this giant retrofit project or what? Yeah. I mean, I think China is facing a harsh reality that a lot of its urban areas will have to be retrofit. Luckily, there's some sort of easy fixes, I think, that these neighborhoods in China can adopt. So, for example, a lot of these super blocks are just these huge residential courtyard compounds, which recently, this May, the state council issued new guidelines that said, you know, a lot of these super block courtyards have to be torn down. So if you look at ways to tear these down, there's actually very natural ways to create greenways or pedestrian-only paths through these super blocks. Another really easy fix to, you know, encourage mixed-use development is seen in a neighborhood in Guangzhou called Liuyun Xiaoqu. And what they did was simply allow the first floor of a lot of residential buildings to commercialize and then implemented a lot of car control strategies. So literally just setting up bollards or putting up big planters on the road so that cars can't get into certain areas of this residential development. And now Liuyun Xiaoqi is almost has some European vibes because it's this very walkable mixed-use development that has great nightlife, great shopping, and a lot of cafe culture. So some of these easy tweaks would be really important first steps for these super blocks that we've been talking a lot about to adopt. Huh, interesting. And if they're going to be just tearing them down and rebuilding them, you know, in a better way, I guess that has the kind of the side benefit of being an ongoing and continued stimulus for the economic growth that sort of picking up where building ghost cities left off, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I think that a lot of these ghost cities will see different development strategies in the next decade. So one thing that's shifting right now among developers in China is that a lot of developers aren't willing to do property management. So when they built these ghost cities, they were just thinking, wow, we'll sell the buildings, make our profit, whatever. We don't care what happens after that. But as land becomes more constrained and there's less land to sell, these ghost cities will have to be revisited and property developers will have to say, okay, what are the detailed on the ground level property management decisions we can make to really attract new residents or new businesses to these areas? Interesting. You know, one of the key questions, I guess, in China's energy future is certainly transportation. China accomplished an astonishing build-out of high-speed rail capacity. I mean, they built the world's largest high-speed rail network in just about a decade, which has really helped them avoid a lot of emissions from air travel and long-haul road traffic. But what about urban transportation? I mean, are they just going to continue following the U.S. model and building a lot of roads for personal vehicles with all the emissions that entails and the dependency on oil imports? Or are they actually looking to cleaner alternatives like electric vehicles and light rail and subways and even e-bikes? Yeah. So I actually think this is one of the most underlooked areas in which China is heavily investing in and doing a fantastic job at. 
they really invested, like you said, in their high-speed rail system, which is now 19,000 kilometers. They've really invested in subways. If you go to the subway in Beijing, just within the last five years, they've added five or six separate lines, which I don't think has happened in any other city in the world recently. So I think these things are heavily overlooked by the West when they're talking about China's green infrastructure or their investment in renewable energy. Other things that China investing in, a great example is electric buses. So there's now electric buses in southern cities in China that can charge within 15 seconds to go from stop to stop. So as passengers are getting on and getting off the bus, the bus has already become fully charged to get to the next station. And this opens up a host of new opportunities for public transit, especially in the realm of bus rapid transit, as I was talking about earlier. Finally, I think one of the most interesting transit options that China is really the first country in the world to use very heavily is electric bikes. There's over 200 million electric bikes in China right now. Wow. <laughs> 200 million. Yeah. Wow. Really insane. And what's amazing is it's the world's largest alternative fuel vehicle fleet that happened completely organically. You know, the Chinese government is subsidizing $20,000 for an electric car, but they have this amazing electric bike fleet that the government's just completely ignoring. And I think because there's a lot of complexities in managing and regulating electric bikes, some Chinese cities are actually banning them from some of the major roads. So it's really fascinating story, though, in terms of all the different ways that I think China could really leapfrog on green transportation if they really, you know, encourage the growth of their electric bike industry. Wow, that is mind-blowing. I really had no idea. So let me just dig into a couple of those things. First of all, obviously banning e-bikes is not what you want to do. Yeah. I mean, we should be encouraging them and banning the cars, if, if anything. <laughs> exactly. So where do you think the resolution to that problem going to be? Yeah. So I think a lot of it right now is due to, honestly, lack of information. I think local governments don't have the right information about e-bikes. So what turned me on to sort of the potential of e-bikes is I read a quote in China Daily by Tu Baoxing, who is a former vice minister of China's housing and urban development department. And he actually says verbatim, I do not want to support electric car companies like Tesla. He says electric bikes are much more space efficient and make much more sense for China. And he says, let me quote him directly, electric bicycles never get public endorsement by any ministries, but grow at 35% annual pace. Policymakers should reflect on that. And it's really interesting because you notice that there's actually controversy within the Chinese government and how to regulate electric bicycles. And there's a few second and third tier cities that are now experimenting with providing licenses and registration for e-bike users, which makes tracking violations or fining them or even taxing them much more convenient. And these cities are finding that just by regulating them, accidents and any traffic violations are actually decreasing despite the rate of electric bike registration increasing at very high rates. Wow, that is impressive. Would you send me a link to, I don't know, some kind of a web page that I could put in the show notes 
preferably one in English, where yeah. the listeners could look at some of the specifications for like a typical e-bike in China? Yes, I definitely can. Because I think my listeners would really love to be able to see what 200 million people are getting around on. Yeah, just some other statistics. Even if an electric bike is running on a very dirty energy source like coal, it's still getting a thousand miles per gallon, mm. right? So even if it's the dirtiest energy source, in some ways it's still more efficient than something like biomethane or natural gas. Also in terms of carrying capacity for electric bikes, I've worked with Chris Cherry, who is a professor at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and he's done research. He's probably the e-bike expert in the world. And he found that there's about 1.12 people per e-bike, but only 1.24 persons per car. So wow. in terms of load and efficiency for carrying capacity, e-bikes are also very competitive with cars. I mean, if you look at the United States, right, during peak traffic hours, there's one person per vehicle. Right. You know, if you're going to move a toothbrush, you don't put it in a shoebox. So I think <laughs> the sense of having an e-bike for a very commuter-heavy urban areas, it just makes a lot of sense. Oh, it makes so much sense. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, my vision for a lot of second-tier and third-tier Chinese cities, these are Chinese cities that people in the U.S. have never heard of, like Jinan or Changsha or Liuzhou, they all have over a million people and often have more than five million people. And they can't afford metro. Light rail is also pretty expensive. So I really think bus rapid transit and electric bikes combined could solve more than 50% of the commute problem. Wow. And I think that should be a vision for urban transportation for other cities in developing countries across the world. I mean, if you go to Bangkok, the best way to get around is on a moto taxi, you know, because you don't see that same congestion that cars run into. And I think, you know, in cities like Jakarta or Chiang Mai, I think it's going to be a lot of the same trends going on. And conversely, when I went to Bali last year, I saw just horrific congestion with people riding little gasoline mopeds with yes. just terrible, terrible exhaust coming out of them. I mean, it just seemed like an absolute melee on the road out there. Yeah, it's awful. And I mean, the cost of e-bikes in China right now is extremely low. So I think it's a huge potential market for China to export. You know, an e-bike in the United States, I think, is usually about $800 to $1,000. Yeah. In China, you can get a great e-bike for under $200. Wow. And the labor infrastructure for fixing e-bikes, you know, there's an e-bike technician on every block in every city in China. Hmm. So that's really things that I think the Chinese government needs to take advantage of rather than, you know, due to lack of information and proper statistics and laziness from unwillingness to regulate, you know, sort of let slide by and miss this wonderful opportunity for green and better transportation. Hells yeah. Yay, I mean, e-bikes. Yeah. <laughs> China should be promoting the hell out of that to the rest of the world. Yeah, they should be bragging about it, you know. And something else I think that's really interesting now with e-bikes is with the rise of e-commerce, e-bikes have been one of the best ways for companies like Baidu 
or any of these food delivery apps to get their services completed. So a lot of cities are now finding it difficult to ban e-bikes because of the e-commerce industry. So I think in the next five years, you'll really see a lot of of these struggles sort of fixed in terms of will e-bikes win or will cars win, which I think will be a really interesting battle to watch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to go back to a point you made earlier. You were saying that their electric buses mm-hmm. can actually get a little bit of a recharge in the short period of time that they're at a bus stop. Yes, yes. All right. I got to I got to understand more about this. How, how does this work? <laughs> I mean, are, are we using inductive chargers or are they actually plugging in? Or I mean, what's the output on these charging stations? I mean, it must be like super high speed stuff. Yeah, it's super high speed stuff. Basically, what it is, is that at the bus stop, the battery for the bus is on top of the bus. So when the bus stops at the station, there's an inductive charge system in the wires that go over the bus that give the bus a 15-second shock. And I think these buses are also highly efficient. So this 15-second shock is enough for the bus to go three or four kilometers before it gets charged in its next station. Wow. So it's really amazing. And when you think about how wide a lot of the roads in these Chinese cities are, this probably is going to be one of the best ways for China to improve its public transit system is electric buses, sort of after e-bikes, of course, (laughs) in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Do you know any of the specs on these charging stations? I mean, what are we talking about here? These are like, it's got to be like close to like 80, 100 kilowatts at least. Yeah, I'd have to look up the details, but I might have the link somewhere in my files. So I can send that to you. That is amazing. I have never heard that before. And I've been researching yeah. EVs. This just blows my mind. All right. Yeah. Let's move on from transportation here a little bit Great. and urban design and talk about some of the other things that China can do to reduce its energy consumption and be more energy efficient or reduce its carbon footprint. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody knows that, you know, there's just this massive smog problem, especially in the big cities. Right. It's one thing to reduce your emissions in certain cities or on a national basis, but it's kind of another when you're really looking at a country like China that is so dependent on coal to get rid of that. So, you know, what's your perspective on kind of China's larger energy transition task and how it can become more energy efficient? Yeah, definitely. So, and this is largely related to, you know, I think why China is placing so much emphasis on urban development is China has to get away from manufacturing as its primary economic driver. So a big way to do that is to encourage more consumption of goods and services within urban areas. And this is also why China is pushing a lot of rural residents to move to cities, why China is advocating concepts like the China dream or bringing back a lot of Confucian things because they're creating a new model of development that they want to be uniquely Chinese. So this is slightly a tangent, I guess, but in terms of bringing back a lot of Confucian principles, it's because China is very worried about, you know, its aging population and how that will impact its economic growth. So that's also a very unique problem that China is facing. Well, it could also be a very unique asset because it means the demographics are working in its favor in terms of reducing its energy consumption. (laughs) Yes, that's actually very true. 
you know, that's why urban development is so important is because this is where a lot of the service-based industry is going to grow. So if you look at China's savings rate as a percentage of GDP, it's about 50%. If you look at the United States, it's about 18%. So there's a lot of room there really for the Chinese government to encourage consumer spending. And I think that's also where a lot of the economic growth in the China in the future will really be. And you can already see that happening just in the past few years. I think consumption rates have increased while manufacturing rates have decreased a few percentage points each. But I think the challenge will be how do we give the Chinese public a sense of economic stability so they feel the security to spend their savings? which right now I don't think the Chinese economy is providing the public. Interesting. You know, I guess it'd be worthwhile refreshing here exactly what China's objectives are under the Paris Agreement, which, hooray, is now binding. Do you think it can meet those targets? Yeah. So China's biggest commitment from the Paris Accords is to peak carbon emissions by 2030. And honestly, I think it will be on track to meet those targets. But the downside of that is I think China meeting those targets is not enough for China's economy at large. Like you were talking about, there's air pollution problems, there's water scarcity issues, there's energy scarcity issues. And I think for China to really have a robust, stable economy, it's going to have to go beyond the Paris climate agreements and really redefine green economic growth even more than the United States and you know probably at the level of a lot of European countries like Sweden or Norway in terms of investing in long-term economic growth. And as China decarbonizes by getting out of manufacturing, I, I wonder you know, who's going to start making the stuff that China used to make? And isn't that just going to wind up moving the emissions problem to another country? Yeah, I definitely think so. And that's one of my greatest fears. When I was working with the Natural Resources Defense Council in Beijing, my main project was focusing on energy efficiency and textile factories. And we saw firsthand that a lot of these factories instead of upgrading their energy efficiency, would just move to Vietnam Mm. or Thailand Mm -hmm. or the Philippines. And there's this zero-sum game that I think international companies really have to look at because they're the ones with the ability to stop it. So I think having responsible sourcing, different business models where people aren't just buying something to use for a year or two, but, you know, a service-based model that I think internet companies are now modeling very well for other sectors, I think that's really going to have to be a big part of the future. Well, I agree. And, you know, it's more than just industry that's culpable here. I mean, governments are too. You know, the U.S. and, and European governments have been all too happy to claim their energy intensity, energy consumption per GDP, has been improving while they were outsourcing their manufacturing to China. (laughs) Exactly. exactly. And sort of ignoring that or just pretending like, oh, well, you know, we're we're just advancing our economy when when in fact all they did was displace the emissions to somewhere else. And now China can do the same thing and say, hey, our energy intensity is improving too. And meanwhile, the global load of emissions just keeps going up. I mean, this is not what we're trying to do. 
Exactly. So, you know, I think that's why we really need innovation and technologies rather than just looking at these simple metrics such as GDP growth or energy and carbon intensity on a country level basis. Yes. We have to look at more balanced indicators such as what Willie McDonald is doing with his cradle to cradle standard right. or you know what China is now really trying to do with its circular economy strategy and I think this is the real type of innovation that has to take place otherwise we're going to see this zero sum game going through its vicious cycle over and over again. Well, you know, in a previous episode of this podcast, we talked about switching to metrics that would actually look at the carbon emissions per activity or per service. I could also see a more accurate metric being, what's the embedded CO2 output in an item? Yes. Like what if when you went to buy a car, there was a little sticker on there that said, it took X tons of CO2 to produce this car. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No I matter think, where it was made, you know. Yeah, that would be fascinating. And, you know, I still don't think there's enough pressure from consumers and the government to pressure manufacturers to do things like this. I mean, Patagonia, I think, is one of the few brands that even looks through its entire supply chain to understand where its carbon emissions are coming from and where its products are coming from. Something else I wanted to mention earlier that I think is really interesting coming out of China is China's Ministry of Health recently set a new standard to decrease meat consumption across China by 50%. Mm, that's a big one. Yeah, and that's a huge source of emissions. I think globally, the emissions from animal meat production and consumption are even higher than all transportation emissions combined. Hmm. So if you're talking about a green economy, I think you can't ignore the food system. You know, compared to the United States, I really think that that's an important model for the U.S. to follow, which is saying, how do we cut down on meat consumption? Because U.S. and European meat consumption right now is double China's. And I think the carbon footprint from that is also quite significant. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. You know, one of the things that I struggle with, I mean, one of the big macro questions I think a lot of people in the energy trade are wondering about right now is just how much of global demand for commodities owed to China's rapid city building boom, which would make it more of a kind of a one-time boost in demand versus how much of it might actually just be sustained secular demand that's going to go on for a long time. And one example of this would be how much of world oil demand over the past few years has been going to fill up China's new strategic petroleum reserve. Because if it's been significant and that reserve is nearly full, it could actually mean weaker global demand for oil in the near future, like in the next couple of years, and lower prices, which would have really potentially serious consequences for investment in future supply, just as the oil industry is hoping that, you know, we can do some small cuts here and there and we'll get supply and demand back in balance and we'll enable the big uh, oil producers to start investing their capex again. If China's done filling its SPR, I wonder if that's going to undercut that. So do you have any sense of that, of like how much China's demand for, for really all sorts of commodities is really firm, sustainable demand and how much of it was just sort of a artifact of a short-term building spree? Yeah, I honestly think a lot of it will be this short-term building spree. I think one principle that China has really learned and is largely reflected in its new 13th five-year plan, which is very different from the 12th five-year plan, 
is that market demand for things such as steel, cement, and oil will never truly be sustainable. So the Chinese central government, I think, gained a new awareness looking at the 13th five-year plan that they really have to reconsider what growth means. And you see the Chinese government trying to revitalize aspects of sustainability that are very different from the American dream. There's no way that every Chinese can own a three-story suburban house with a minivan. Right now, only 10% of Chinese people own cars, and China has more congested cities than almost any other city in the world. So I think China, like we were talking about earlier, will have to look at different types of indicators. You know, energy and carbon intensity, rich-poor gap, the size of their service-based economy, amount of spending on education and health. And, you know, another important metric would be land efficiency to really have sustained growth. And I think the commodities market needs to be aware of that. Mm. I completely agree. I I really have a sneaking feeling there are some nasty surprises lurking out there for us in terms of weakening China's demand. Because, I, I mean, I think that really had a lot to do the weakening Chinese demand curve had a lot to do with the fact that, you know, with, with the reasons for oil and gas prices starting to crash two years ago. Yes. And I think it's an underappreciated fact. I mean, while Chinese demand was cooling and, you know, this oversupply condition was evolving and, and prices started to fall, all anybody could talk about was OPEC overpumping. But you know what? OPEC was not overpumping. <laughs> what was happening is demand was getting weak and nobody was looking at that. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree, Chris. And and I think even though there's still 300 million Chinese people in poverty and a huge source of economic growth that I think the Chinese government is really counting on is lifting these people out of poverty. But I think the way that the Chinese government is going to do that is very different from the model that the government has really been following from Deng Xiaoping since the 1980s. And I think that model does not work anymore. Hmm. Wow. That's a sobering thought. <laughs> well, we've covered China pretty well, and, and I don't want to let you go without talking about India a little bit, because in yeah. 2014, you co-authored a report with some of your fellow Princeton grads about financing rural energy microgrid projects in India. And fans of this show will recall that we discussed various aspects of that topic in episodes 11, 12, and 21. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Why is the emphasis here on microgrids? Was your team actually skeptical about the prospects for building out a, you know, a Western-style centralized grid that would actually bring power to rural communities in India? Yeah. So I think one reason we focused on microgrids was that there's been a rise in the number of NGOs that have really been working to install microgrids in different villages in India. But through our research, we actually found that, you know, microgrids aren't going to be the best solution for every village. There's a number of factors at play. One is sort of how far away is this village still from the grid? So you can really do a very simple back of the envelope calculation. What's the cost of extending the grid one kilometer? How much energy demand will realistically come from this village? And then compare that to the cost of a microgrid. So we found that there's a few hundred villages where realistically the grid will never reach. So for these villages, one of the best options is a microgrid. Hmm. So what were some of the things that you discovered about the financing side of that problem? Yeah. So I think one 
area we found interesting that almost became more of a philosophical question about development is after you install a microgrid, then what? Is there sort of a development pathway that comes from financing the microgrid? We visited a village in Pune, India called Darawadi. And the villagers there had had a microgrid for about seven years, and they only used the microgrid to charge their phones for light bulbs, some kitchen appliances, and they were most excited about was to watch cricket games on TV. (laughs) So, you know, we found that it really wasn't sort of the ideal situation from a development perspective, which is they're using the microgrid to improve their economic or labor productivity. So in terms of financing a microgrid for a village like this, we found that village buy-in was the most important since most of the reasons they were going to use a microgrid were sort of, you know, individual level lifestyle decisions. The financing for that had to be on a decentralized villager by villager basis. And then for other microgrids where there was potentially a cell phone company needed a tower nearby then this microgrid could really be financed perhaps by the cell phone company as an anchor load. The problem with this is most of those microgrids have already been set up. So the cases left are mostly sort of these very small villages from 70 to 200 people who are still missing power. Hmm. Yeah, one thing that did jump out from that report for me was this emphasis on rural communities investing directly in these microgrids and having that ownership and that direct involvement with the system's operation and management and a path to long-term buy-in, even though, you know, it was mainly through micropayments. Right. As opposed to, you know, kind of the old model of having some NGO or a development bank so helicopter in and just drop a bunch of money on a grid infrastructure project and then helicopter away. I mean, isn't this a difficult path, especially in these impoverished rural communities to like pay for something so expensive with these little micropayments? And is it really the way forward? Yeah. So we found that many of the NGO or development-led projects were often one-off projects. So they would set up one or two microgrids as a pilot to show proof of concept, and then it worked. And then they found that it was actually really difficult to scale to other villages. And this is one of the biggest reasons we recommended village buy-in was because the villages where microgrids were built with village buy-in, you know, there was a local villager trained as a technician, villagers each paid through micropayments for the microgrid. The maintenance and operation of the microgrid was much longer and it actually needed fewer repairs throughout the lifetime because the technician was there constantly trying to maintain the quality of the microgrid. Mm. So that, I think, was sort of the -the on-the-ground experience we found. And a different NGO we talked to in India, Graham Orja, also had the same experience with biogas projects. So across these different energy sources, you know, it's really the village that has to drive the sustenance of that infrastructure project. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, actually. You know, both the sort of stitch in time aspect of maintenance, but also just kind of having that integration into the daily life of the people who live there has got to be just a crucial aspect of this. 
Yeah, yeah. And we looked at also calculations of training a village technician versus having an external technician come in. And, you know, again, there's different prototypes. So there's some instances where there'd be a number of villages clustered together. In that case, an external technician kind of made sense because he could come in and kind of have the accumulated scale of having five villages pay for his services. But many times there was one village that would just be really far away. So the transportation costs and sort of the difficulty of even getting this technician to get to the village would make it very unrealistic to Mm. have an external technician. Mm. So we found that it really is a village by village basis on which you have to decide the business model for the microgrid. And I think that's really important. And I guess most of these microgrids are probably solar powered, huh? Yes, yes. Most of them are solar powered. And so the most expensive part of the microgrid that was hard to sustain and that really made the difference between whether a village could afford it or not was the battery because oftentimes the battery has to get replaced every 10 to 15 years. So the best microgrids would sort of go through multiple battery cycles, whereas the ones without village buy-in might only go through one cycle because of the cost of the battery. And so there's another potential benefit to the fact that our battery costs are dropping so rapidly now with, uh, you know, the development of electric vehicles and more battery-backed solar systems. It's just going to be good news for rural communities in places like India. Yeah, definitely. And I think what's also interesting about microgrid technology is I think a lot of the potential has not been realized. I think there's a lot of potential for microgrids to charge electric bikes, for example, Mm -hmm. through different distributed energy centers across cities. So I think once these other uses of microgrid are sort of captured by businesses, their cost and efficiency will also increase. The same way what we saw for solar panels has happened in the past 10 years. Yeah. You know, earlier this year, I I did a report on the potential for dynamic charging of electric vehicles as a grid asset, you know, as a distributed energy resource. Yep. But now I'm, I've got to go figure out what <laughs> what electric bikes can, can do yeah. in playing that role because much smaller loads, but it could be super interesting as a kind of a grid balancing asset. That would be really interesting. I'm actually working on a report about electric bikes right now with ITDP, the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy, they're one of the largest transport-oriented NGOs in the world. And, you know, I think that's really something we want to paint a vision for, which is what is the vision of how electric bikes can be integrated into the energy system of a city? And if you look at some cities in Europe, they're actually doing that with their boats. They're using their boat batteries to help balance the load the same way that it's being done with electric vehicles. Really? So, yeah. I've so I think, never heard that before. Yeah. I, I'll send you the link. I thought it was fascinating, but I think there's <laughs> a lot of potential, you know, in the flexibility of how energy intrinsically works that markets and grid systems still have not captured. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, this conversation was full of surprises for me. Thank you, Cece. Awesome. That was really I'm- fun. Yeah, I'm glad you learned a lot. Yeah, and you know, if you have any follow-up questions or anything, please let me know. I think it's really fun talking to you. I certainly will. And once you get done with this next report and you have some intel on some specifics to share on how electric e-bikes can can function as yeah. distributed grid assets, definitely want to get you back on the program to talk about that. Yeah, that would be great. That okay. would be great. Thanks a we lot. We can have an e-bike episode. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> okay. 
Thanks so much, Chris. That was Cece Huang, a research and policy analyst and an expert in urban development. There is no doubt that the world has some major challenges to surmount to green up its cities, especially the ones built around automobiles over the past century. And there's no doubt that this must be a significant priority in energy transition because so much of our energy goes to heat and cool and access and maintain our built environment. But I think it's exciting to think about how, with the kind of smart urbanization techniques CC described, those cities could become not only more energy efficient, but less polluted, more beautiful, and more enjoyable places to live, particularly if self-driving electric cars become the norm, and we can free up all that space that's devoted to vehicles now, most of which spend 23 hours a day parked. And I like CeCe's observation that electric bicycles in China are the world's largest alternative fuel vehicle fleet. And the potential for charging those bicycles dynamically, along with dynamic charging of boats, who knew, is very interesting to me, as it's the same concept I wrote about in the report I did for RMI earlier this year, Electric Vehicles as Distributed Energy Resources. I'll link to that report in the show notes, along with the items CC mentioned on e-bikes. I will say that I am not yet convinced that the majority of the world's population will live in megacities later this century. I see a lot of value and even the potential for a high-quality, low-energy lifestyle in remaining in agrarian rural communities. There is probably a point at which it takes more energy, for example, to grow and transport food over long distances to large populations living in megacities than it saves by having all those people in one dense place. And I think we could use more good modeling work in that area for sure. But there is very clearly a need for smart urbanization and greening up our existing cities, and I'm very pleased that CC was able to share her insights about that with us today. Now a quick look at some recent news items. Enthusiasm for electric and autonomous vehicles, particularly as a way to make cities greener, continues to grow, and several news items suggest that their sales are really picking up. So let's start with them. Item 1. A report from Bloomberg New Energy Finance and McKinsey & Company quantified the possible benefits of vehicle electrification over the next 15 years, such as improved safety, reduced vehicle emissions, and reduced congestion. It found that if densely populated wealthy cities like London and Singapore had up to 60% electric vehicles, it would deliver societal benefits of as much as $7,400 per person, or $30 billion to $45 billion for an average dense city. High-income areas of suburban sprawl could gain as much as $3,300 per person in benefits, mainly through the use of autonomous vehicles. And dense cities in emerging economies, like Mumbai and Mexico City, could gain as much as $2,800 per person in societal benefits, mainly through car sharing. Item 2. An article in The Guardian says that 2 million plug-in electric vehicles will be on the road by the end of this year globally, double the number that existed last year. Industry observers are bullish, saying that the electric car revolution is finally underway, led by surging sales in China and followed by Europe and then the U.S. The world's top five best-selling EVs in the first half of 2016 were the Nissan Leaf, the Tesla Model S, two models from Chinese auto manufacturer Build Your Dreams, or BYD, and the Chevrolet Volt, respectively. And with battery costs continuing to fall by an estimated 20% per year, 
The future looks bright for accelerating EV sales. Item three, entire countries are now switching entirely to electric vehicles or planning to. A few months ago, Norway's populist right-wing progress party proposed banning gasoline cars entirely by 2025. In Netherlands, the Labour Party proposed ending sales of petrol and diesel vehicles by 2025. And last week, Germany's Bundesrat, the federal legislative body of all 16 German states, issued a non-binding resolution that would ban all gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles by 2030. A pretty remarkable move for a country so wedded to its auto manufacturing industry. So far, none of these moves appear to be binding, but they do indicate a strong populist momentum for EVs. Item four, on a different but no less optimistic subject, on October 5th, 2016, as expected, the threshold was reached to make binding the Paris Agreement on climate change. At least 55 countries, accounting for at least 55% of total greenhouse gas emissions, have now ratified or otherwise approved the agreement, which will now enter into force on November 4th. So the world is now finally on course to take real coordinated action on climate change, and now I expect that this show will never run out of things to talk about. And finally, item five. New records continue to be set for low wind and solar prices around the world. The second long-term electricity auction in Mexico produced winning bids for nearly five terawatt hours of electricity at just $33 per megawatt hour or 3.3 cents per kilowatt hour. And Abu Dhabi bested its own record set just three months ago with a winning bid for a 350 megawatt solar PV plant that came in at just $24 per megawatt hour or 2.42 cents per kilowatt hour. And it should be noted that these prices are far, far below the levelized cost of energy, LCOE, figures cited in a new report from Carbon Tracker, the UK organization we discussed in episodes five and six. The multi-scenario report compares the cost of electricity from various fuels globally and concludes that, quote, the average LCOEs for solar and wind are lower than their coal and gas competitors. And it says that unsubsidized renewables are beating out coal and gas in plants now being built, suggesting that investors who base their investment decisions on coal and gas could be deeply misguided. As always, see the show notes for links to all of these stories. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>